Keep looking till you find when you find don't quit it. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm Mike Stacks, the editor and publisher of Ugly Things Magazine, the longest-running, independently published rock and roll magazine in the world. In this episode, we're going to be exploring the British rhythm and blues scene of the mid-60s through the memories of someone who was right there in the thick of the action. Derek Griffith was the guitarist for the Artwoods who between 1964 and 1967 traveled the length and breadth of the UK and Europe, as well as releasing seven great singles, an EP, and in 1966, a fabulous album called Art Gallery. The group were named after their singer, Art Wood, the older brother of Ronnie Wood, who was in a cracking R&B band of his own at the time called The Birds. The Art Woods also included future Deep Purple member John Lord on keyboards, Malcolm Poole on bass, and Keith Hartley on drums. I've been interviewing Derek for an upcoming story in Ugly Things and for the liner notes of a couple of Art Woods reissues on Gerson Records. He's a fine raconteur with a keen sense of humor and a memory as razor sharp as his guitar playing. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So the Artwoods were basically formed by amalgamating two groups, right? The Artwood Combo and Red Bloods Bluesicians. Yeah, Red Bloods Bluesicians. Well, that was the, the brainchild of a guy called Don Wilson, who was bass player double bass player in a, a traditional jazz band. And Don became my mentor. He kind of, I was foundering about as an amateur, and he sort of took me under his wing, and he was very kind. And um, he got me into the blues, and we started to work um, doing, I don't know, rock and roll gigs, really, youth clubs and stuff. Yeah. And uh, around about that time, we went up to West Hampstead in London to party, and I was introduced by Don to Don, um, John Lord. And John and I hit it off. And uh, as I say, we were we were working away as Red Bloods musicians. And um, we were kind of doing an, an amalgam of weddings and uh, the odd gig that made sense, like for us, the Flamingo Club in uh, Water Street the odd American air base, and that was exciting. Uh, and then one day I was at work, I was about 18 or 19, and I was doing a day job. And um, mm -hmm. it was John Lord, and he said, guess what, we're going in with Art Wood. And Art Wood had a bit of a name in West London. He was, well, to name drop, he was the brother of Ronnie Wood, but Ron was nothing then, he was a kid. So that wasn't art had a name in his own right. He'd um, he'd been been around the block. He had his own big band, and uh, he sung with Alexis Corner's band. And uh, we were quite impressed to be amalgamating. And we went along to the White Hart Southall, and uh, we had a jam, and it all worked out well. And that was that lineup was um, art on vocals, his drummer 
Reg Dunwich, myself, John, and uh, Don, um, Don. Right. And then we move on. It, we started to work and do some really good gigs. And then one night I got a call in the middle of the night from his wife saying Don's had a terrible accident um, and he'd crashed into the back of a, a lorry coming out of a truck, as you say, coming home from the gig at the White Hart South Hall. And he'd broken his legs and it, it was very sad because it signalled the demise of his career. Uh, and to my shame, I lost touch with him. I really liked him, but I lost touch and I can't think why. And people have tried to trace him and can't, you know. I mean, I presume he's passed on, but yeah. there you go. Um, so we were left then without a bass player and... Um, apart from the tragedy of his accident, we got Malcolm Paul involved. Malcolm was also part of the West London fraternity. Um, so we got Malcolm involved. Malcolm was a very good bass player. He was, um, he was too a double bass player, but he'd taken up bass guitar. And uh, then we were called the Artwood Combo. And we uh, decided to change that to sound a bit more hip and called it the Artwoods. Right. And um, some people made it two words. Some people made it one. There was no real pattern to it. And we ended up with a band that gradually built. Um, we got signed by the London City Agency who were mm, okay, but could have done better. And uh, But they got us a lot of work. And, right. And... Uh, that was it until, well, that's 64, 63, 64, end of 67, I think. Right. Well, you know, let's talk about rhythm and blues, because you were defined as an R&B band. But that these days, R&B, you know, that kind of has a completely different meaning than what it did in England in 1964. So maybe just for the benefit of people listening, um, we can sort of try to define what, British R&B was in the early 60s in that first wave. I mean, how how would you describe it as someone who was a part of that whole movement? Well, we were aware of the fact that we liked a lot of black music and uh, we listened avidly to the early blues men. In fact, we had the good fortune to back Little Walter when he came over on a tour. Tell us about that experience. Well, Walter was like a real had a reputation of being a real volatile guy as well as being a super talented guy what was he like to work with i remember him as lovely i mean i remember being a bit in awe and maybe feeling that as a white kind of middle class london guy it was very odd to be back in the real deal i think um i had certain inhibitions about copying um what people were doing you know the real deal, as I put it. But it had happened in jazz. I mean, lo loads of people were playing bebop, you know, Charlie Parker and uh, Dizzy Gillespie. And right. no, other people didn't have necessarily have those inhibitions, but I felt, I felt extremely white. And, um, but I was trying very hard to be black. I mean, Hubert Sumlin was a hero of mine, the, Great guitar Alan, Alan Wolf's guitar man. Yeah, yeah, he played. I actually had the good fortune of seeing him 
um, at Crook's Cleek, this uh, club in North London. He was a formidable player in a simplistic getting it across manner. There's more ways than one of killing the cat, as they say. I mean, you don't have to be a blinding technician, as yeah. proved by the blues guys. And, I mean, they always say about B.B. King, he could say more in one note than a lot of uh, players could uh, play in the arse of it. You know? but, uh, anyway, what, where were we? Um, what was it like working with um, Little Walter? Well, we did a tour, and uh, I learned a lot. And um, there was this music critic called Max Hastings. He was a jazz critic. And he came to see us at a club, which is rather unglamorously called, especially for American ears, the Fishmonger's Arms Wood Green. <laughs> <laughs> and we were back in Little Water. And, of course, you know, the 12-bar blues is the, um, the basis for that on any chorus could become a 13, even a 13 and a half bar blues. But that's the nature. They were singing their lyrics, fitting them in, adjusting. They were used to playing on their own and stuff. And he came up to me after and said, how on earth, in a very British accent, how on earth did you manage to follow that? I said, because we just listened, you know, and listened to the lyrics and tried to um, be sympathetic backing musicians. Anyway. That's um, that was a great experience. Right. Later, we got the good fortune. I keep using that expression, and I mean it. To back May Mercer, who was, um, I believe, she was Nat King Cole's cousin, and uh, she came over to Britain. Um, we backed her on a big tour, and we later linked up with her in Paris, and uh, she took us down Memphis Limbs Club, which was. An incredible experience, especially as uh, Peter O'Toole ended up paying the bill for the night. So <laughs> that's a story that bears telling, but not necessarily on this podcast. No, well, let's well let's tell that that uh, that that sounds like an interesting night out. You you're in Paris backing May Merce, and she takes you to Memphis Slim's club. Now, what was Memphis Slim's club in Paris like? Well, firstly, we'd taken her out to dinner. And she wanted to return the hospitality. So she said, we'll go out. And we arrive. I mean, I'm in Paris. I don't know where the hell I am. I'm from London. And it's all. We arrive and there's a cord, police cordon, lights. But I couldn't work it out. It was like a sort of Hollywood premiere or something. I couldn't work out what the hell was going on. We're ushered through and we descend these stairs into a basement which is smoky and Parisian and great vibe and Memphis Slim's playing. And it's, it's wonderful. And we have a lot of drinks and thoroughly enjoy the evening. And then the bill comes and there's a sort of awkwardness. I can't put it into words more than that. It was very odd. Um, we knew something was wrong and May was in tears and I thought, think probably the bill had surprised her let's put it that way <laughs> and then i caught we were sort of not knowing what to do and we were on the stairs ready to go up and leave and i saw her and her guy very good looking guy had his arm around her and he was comforting her and the next thing the bill was paid and we left when we got upstairs there was a open top vintage mercedes and what had happened was we 
happened on a there's a film called the night of the generals yeah and it was being filmed and they were using the club as a location after we left and peter o'toole was kind enough to pay the bill because she was distraught so we had a night out on peter o'toole <laughs> wonderful yeah <laughs> it's bizarre it's bizarre but there you go that's the sort of thing that happened <laughs> So you're signed to Southern Music, which is a publishing company based in Denmark Street, and you recorded there, and then your recordings were released by Decca Records. So maybe just set the scene. Southern Music, what was that like? What was what was it like recording in that studio? And what was it like in Denmark Street at that time? It was uncomfortable. It was a, um, it was a music publisher's you went in through. It was like going into a shop. There was a counter with a flip-up lid, you know, that you could go through to the back. When you went down the stairs, it was full of uh, music, all falling out of aisles of music. It was their archive, effectively, and you had to make your way through to the back, and at the back was a tiny studio, size of someone's front room. And um, that was okay, but don't forget we had a Hammond organ. <laughs> we've been working and you know we were knackered and we were trying to manipulate this organ down the stairs and then we'd have to do it in reverse to go to the next evening's gig so nothing as luxurious those days as a studio with equipment other than what was it four track i think uh ampex yeah that's right and um yeah, there was a little side room where the control room was, and it was all very primitive. We had to do loads of overdubbing and um, clearing tracks to make room for um, any overdub. Well, we didn't do loads of overdubbing because we couldn't, but you know what I mean. We, we, we couldn't free up the space very easily without losing something. Four-track limitations. Um, but as proved by people like Buddy Holly, who recorded live and, it, it had a certain atmosphere. Right. I don't know why, but it did. That was uh, Southern Music. Um, there were some very nice people worked there. Denmark Street itself was full of music publishers. I don't think the guitar shop thing had caught on then. It became later a whole road of music shops. But at the time, there was uh, the Giaconda Cafe next door where everybody went for a fry-up. There was uh, Regent Sound, of course, where we made our first recording. Um, that was John and my. That was Red Blood's Musicians. Not oh, yeah, ones. right. And that was with a West Indian singer called Ronnie Gogo Gordon, uh, which I've got, yeah. Unfortunately, the acetate got lost. I wish I had it because it was John's first recording. 
and my first recording. So um, Denmark Street was a step up from that um, in terms of Southern music. But yeah, I mean, you would literally go up and down the line and go and say, you've got anything new to play? And then they'd take you in a room and someone would play it out on piano. If you were lucky, they'd run you yeah. off an acetate. I actually did that with two, I think it was two artwood singles. I went shopping and they, <laughs> Oh My Love was a, I shopped for it and it wasn't for us to stay in Hunter. It might have been, but I think they were around the corner. There was a drinking club called the 142 Club. Right. Um, where we, you, well, you're young, so you get tanked up and drive out to the gig. All highly illegal these days, but that's what you did. <laughs> Going all around the world Trying to find sweet Mary All around the world Trying to find sweet Mary I got to try to find out What she's got that's ending for me So the first single, first artwork single you made was Sweet Mary. Um, what, what are your memories of, of that? How did you come up with that song? I know Cyril Davis had put out a version of it a few months earlier or half a year earlier than yours. I remember it being played to me in a rehearsal. It wasn't a rehearsal room. It was a pub back room where we rehearsed in some of our Hounslow way, West London. And... Uh, I liked it, and I came up with that jigging. I hate it now, by the way. Um, <laughs> it speeds up. It it, it goes all the way like the, the clappers. I mean, <laughs> I thought that was intentional. No, well, actually, semi-intentional because our producer Terry Kennedy, Terry was whipping us up, saying more excitement, you know, from the control room, and so instead of it just going up in intensity we being very green at the time started to increase the tempo as well which sounds like it embarrasses me a bit but it was quite raw and i forget where we made it but i know there was a horrible buzz they couldn't get rid of and they had to attach an earth wire to my wristwatch <laughs> <laughs> they attached um it to the guitar and my wristwatch to get rid of the bars. I mean, imagine <laughs> that now. <laughs> So during this period, let's talk about, you know, some of the clubs you were working at. Um, you know, we, we hear the names of these clubs, but Eel Pie Island, for example, you know, what, what was that experience like? Eel Pie Island was a very odd place. It was formed by a guy called Art Chisnell. He was actually a social worker, and he'd ascertained that if you gave the kids something to do, they wouldn't get into mischief. Now, in the 60s, long hair did not abound until the end of 60s. Um, it was quite straight. 
people don't realize that in London, it was very much a carry on of the 50s. It started to kick in halfway through, maybe swinging London, as they call it. It was about 65, 66. And then you got the hippie thing, 67, 68, which came over from California, where I believe you're sitting at this very moment. I am, yes. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was was a thrilling time. Um, The eel pie was... um, You'd arrive and there'd be all these long-haired kids. Well, I didn't realise at the time they were art students because there's loads of art um, colleges in West London. Right. And that was was what they were about, you know. And um, there was lots of uh, lovemaking on the lawn outside, lots of – which I didn't actually see or get involved with because I was busy working. It was – again, it was quite intense, the Alpine. It was an old uh, Edwardian ballroom made of wood. Now, health yeah. and safety would not allow a thousand kids in there. If it had gone up, it would have been a bonfire. Um, and people were smoking then, don't forget. It had a sprung dance floor. And so when they pogoed off on each, on each other's shoulders, the whole bloody floor was going up and down like a trampoline. <laughs> and we were... We were sat. We were on the stage, you know, which was very enclosed. I mean, my ears were ringing for three or four days afterwards. The amount of hearing damage I must have done is incredible there. But there you go. We weren't that loud, but we were loud for the time. And, and no to get to was. the ballroom, you had to go over a bridge, right? There was a bridge. Yeah, it was a footbridge, but you could fit a mini over. Now, Art Chisnell had a mini van. And it had that much, few inches, just the wing mirrors cleared it. I think he had to put them in. He'd come over and we could lay the the um, Hammond down on its back, sticking over. He'd take that over and then he'd come back and do the Leslie and a few amps. Took us about five trips to get the gear over. <laughs> and uh, it, was a, it was an experience. Um, there's a club actually, that tries to perpetuate its um, presence. It's called the Eel Pie Club that happens every fortnight in Twickenham. Of course, it's in, the, it's in a pub. It's got nothing to do with the vibe. It was, we took it for granted. It was a lovely gig for us. We were West Londoners and, uh, you know, didn't have to drive far, could leave home late, get home early. And, um, yeah, I mean, probably by today's standards, it was very, fairly innocent. I mean, it wasn't like four in the morning or anything. It was probably licensing hours, which would have been about 11 then. But, and all the bands played there. Right. Uh, you know, what about um, Klug's Clique? I mean, what was that club like? What made that different, if, if it did? What made Klug's Clique different was, uh, I guess, Dick Jordan, who ran it. And he booked the top bands at the time, we were supporters at the start to Zoot Manny and uh, Graham Bond, who I very much admired, yeah. and Georgie Fane. And then one night he said, you've graduated. You're, I'm going to give you your own spot. So we were, wow. In fact, there's an album just come out. Where is it? Uh, here it is. That's it. The Artwoods Live yeah. at Klux Clique, yeah. Yeah who should be sitting in with us that night with Long John Baldry. 
And here is the great long thing itself with five long years, which is an Eddie Boy number. Here it comes. Uh, long John Baldry. I mean, he was an amazing character, right? And, and really a huge presence over the whole early British R&B scene. Tell us about Long John. Long John was uh, a lovely guy, very posh and uh, quite a loose dresser. And he had an eye for the chaps. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, Ali McKenzie says he used to get after one of his band in the birds. And um, yeah, he was, he was not a threat, but he was different. I mean, I've never met any gay people really before Long John. And right. I say, I, I really liked him. And I went out to a club in uh, near London Airport and saw him with Rod Stewart in the early days. And he was he was good. I mean, I must replay the track that he was on. He pissed me off that night actually because I got a brand new ES335 Gibson guitar. It's my first really pucker guitar, and bit of guitar technology it didn't have uh wires to hold the bridge pieces in oh he asked if he could borrow it and i was sidelined and he attacked it with such verve a couple of that he broke a couple of strings and the bridge saddles everyone's hunting around for these this is so professional we're all on our hands and knees looking for these sodding bridge bridge uh, saddles <laughs> but i thought yeah i could do without that Anyway, <laughs> it's a Long John story. Lovely guy. And what about Graham Bond? We mentioned him briefly, but uh, that's a huge, larger-than-life character. Phenomenal. He was a great alto player, jazz player. But then he was the first person who really, oh, I can feel it now, that Leslie Speaker and that, gutsy chords he used to smoke a fag and he put it on the um on the keyboards on the keys which were charred down the bottom where he let his <laughs> cigarettes um burn down and uh he used to do this feature where he played i can never remember whether it was right hand hammond and left hand alto or left hand hammond and right hand alto but he used right. to duet with himself it was fabulous Amazing. And he was, oh, he was the business. Sadly, I understand he was into black magic. And legend has it, in fact, truth has it, that he threw himself under a London underground train. Yeah, he came to a tragic end. He was convinced he was the illegitimate son of Alistair Crowley, and in 1974, he threw himself under a train at Finsbury Park tube station. Well, we touched briefly on, on equipment. I believe you used Selma amplifiers in the beginning and uh, used to go to the Selma factory, in fact. And could you tell us your Selma factory story? Yeah, we used to get free gear. And at the time, it was pri prior to us getting a Hammond, we had a Lowry. Lowry organs, I don't want to bad mouth them, but they did break down. They had Instead of Hammonds being all mechanical, I don't know the ins and outs of it, they had um, electronic circuitry, which we, when we went over the bumpy roads of Poland, 
we use, lose whole banks. So we ended up doing sort of hoochie coochie man and E flat because certain notes weren't <laughs> working on, you know, it was bizarre. Anyway, fortunately we were able to do that. Didn't sound the same. Though. Um, so when the gear broke down and it was mostly the Lowry, we used to take it back to Theobald's road in East London and, uh, You'd arrive, we'd park out the back, get the offending piece of gear in. Maybe we were off to a gig that night. And uh, we pressed the lift button, and it was one of those old lattice gate lifts, you know, you'd hear. And down would come the lift, and there was this little cockney sparrow. Hello, lads, all right? And uh, we used to say, yeah, we're all right, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. You know, he used to make the tea and work the lift. And um, we get the gear fixed and go off. Anyway, one day we see him in Denmark Street. We said, uh, what are you doing here? He said, oh, I'm in a band. And we, mm. He sat in the van with us. We said, what's the band called? He said, oh, I'm embarrassed. Go on, what is it? He said, the small faces. So we pissed ourselves laughing. And uh, it was Plonk Lane. So he graduated from Selma's to the small places. <laughs> That's the great thing about it. People, well, it happened in America everywhere. People just managed to somehow get themselves into the business. talk about the second single which was oh my love which um you and i have discussed in the past it was written by a couple of blokes from the group cops and robbers and uh it's a really strong single i think that one got a great piano i thought so yeah yes it is a good piano part that was done in southern music and they did get a good piano sound i think they had um a piano with uh drawing pins and the felts to give it that real punch and John played a great part in that. Um, I think that's one I went shopping for. Yeah. You know, I went in the music publishers and they gave me that. I may be wrong. But... Can you hear a big difference between Parliament and Funkadelic? Are you able to name the members of Wings who were not Paul and Linda? And are you intimately familiar with every track on side six of The Clash at Sandinista? Then Discographies, the podcast for you. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. Ugly Things friend Dave Gebro and the guests explore an artist or band's entire recorded output in a futile but valiant attempt to reach a higher truth, often cleverly disguised as a nerdy compendium of star ratings and lists. Some of the many guests have included Vashti Bunyan rating her own catalog, Jim Florentine doing four episodes on Black Sabbath, Lou Barlow on The Zombies, members of Pavement doing a five-parter on their own work, 
Anthony Fantano on the Velvet Underground, Bob Mayer on the Replacements, Andrew Sandoval on the Monkees, and Don Randy rating the great David Axelrod. Dave Gebro's also been releasing three shows a week for over a year in one of the most active Patreons humanly possible. You're not going to want to miss it. Discography is available wherever podcasts are consumed. We recommend that you subscribe and listen. I know that um, right around the time that you released Oh My Love, you guys got on a national tour with PJ Proby in 1964. Yeah, we did, yeah. We just had PJ on the podcast. And uh, anyway, so you must have stories about touring with PJ Proby. Oh, well, I mean, it was pretty sensational. I've never seen the fan fervor like that. Girls are being held back by bouncers, you know. It was, um, it was a sight to behold. He certainly had something, but unfortunately he seemed to party too hard. I always seemed to be bumping into him coming out of clubs uh, in the smaller hours. I mean, he had everything, but he threw it all away. I don't don't quite know how that happened. But Yeah, immensely talented, but just self-destructive in the most amazing yeah. way, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a true rock and roll story, you know. Yeah. So, you know, how was being on the road on a package tour like that different from, I mean, you're used to playing in clubs up to that point. Now you're playing in... Um, I imagine, you know, halls and, and uh, theatres and things like the that. Theatres, yeah. It was the tour after he'd split his pants to massive uh, press attention. I mean, the British press have got a very small, uh, very small-minded. They love a good sensation. And uh, poor old PJ, I don't know whether it's deliberate or whether he, it was accidental, but he split his pants and he got banned from a lot of a big circuit. And we picked up on, we do city halls and civic halls, but big, big venues, but not the theatre circuit. Yeah. Although I do remember the first gig we did was a theatre and I was, I remember being asked what our lighting plot was. And I thought, don't know. <laughs> Never been asked for that before. <laughs> yeah. How did you how did you go down on those tours? I mean, was it just girls there to see PJ Proby, or did you manage to get some traction? I think I think we were opening, and we were a club band at the time, and we were just pushing what we had, a couple of songs, and I I, I don't remember us certain places alight or anything. It was all about Proby, right? Yeah, I mean, you were really always kind of a working band. It was you were never a hit record-making band. You never made that transition, and maybe you just weren't that type of band, and nothing wrong with being a working band. It wasn't at the time. In fact, I went from the artwoods when I thought that that was it, that I would be, you know, getting a straight job. I got an offer from a band called Lucas and the Mike Cotton Sound. Right. Lucas was a black American from Cleveland, and uh, we were earning more money than a lot of chart bands who were on wages. I remember the Small Faces famously were, I think, being paid a pittance by Don Arden. Um, there was a lot of rip-off in the, uh, in the business.
So let's talk about you know the, the changes that were happening sort of 65 to 66. There's sort of a shift over from sort of R&B with harmonica and, and that kind of thing to more of a soul sound, Motown and Stax. And, and that's reflected in the artworks with the single I Take What I Want, you know, which was your first really, uh, you know, soul single, a Sam and Dave song. Um, you know, can you tell me about what, you know, what were the changes that were going on? I think the changes were that um, Art was always a follower. Art would, would pretty much do what the band wanted. Lovely guy, by the way. And um, John and I had a bit of a kind of row at one rehearsal. And I think Keith Hartley was who we got by that time. He was wanting to stay as we were. And we were wanting to progress. And we saw progressing as doing more adventurous chord changes and, you know, more adventurous stuff. And we were all listening to Tamla and stuff and uh, imitating it badly. And I've had other critics say, well, I actually like the British take on what was going on at the time. So, and I, I didn't think it stood a chance, but it happened to be we went in the studio and it worked. You know? I think that was the first time you were produced by Mike Vernon as well. Was yeah. when you did. I take what I want, and and I I do love what you do with it because you don't try to imitate Sam and Dave for a start. You don't have horn section, uh, and you're using um, for a fuzz tone on your guitar for the first time. I think I had a beat beat up amp. It was called a Dallas, and it had been involved in the accident I mentioned earlier on the North Circular, and uh, it had a twelve inch, ten inch speaker. Was it or twelve? very underpowered, never a stage amp, and it was covered in this polka dot vinyl. And uh, I got it out one day to use in the in the dressing room. And it had this sound like sort of ripping sound. And I played it to the guys and we decided to use it on that track. It wasn't actually a fuzz pocket box, it was just my Dallas 15 watt amp flat out and uh, it worked and that song actually made number 35 in the charts so this was suddenly yeah. your breakthrough i mean did that well, change anything it did we got loads of ballrooms at more money. And uh, because we were unknown on that circuit, yeah. nobody turned up. So the promoters would go, well, last week we had the Hollies and they packed it. So we won't be using you again. <laughs> so it was very deflating. And um, we were used to packing clubs, you know. A hit, hit record isn't all that it's made out to be if you're not all geared up for it. Of course, yeah. we didn't have the management. We didn't have the expenditure. We didn't have the publicity. All the machinery wasn't in place. So we, we dive bombed. And it, it kind of really was the prelude to us splitting up. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot lot more to come. But, yeah, that I guess you, you realize that you weren't built for those larger venues. You were a club band. and. Uh, you were a fish out of water, I guess, in those larger venues. Yeah, we were. I mean, 
other club bands who followed us around the circuit, like The Who, they made it. Um, but then you see the essential element was missing. We weren't writing. Yeah. And we found out it, that the penny dropped too late that we needed to write. And by that time, we were on the decline. But uh, I mean, some of the greatest writing bands like the Beatles, the Stones, they perpetuated their success. Um, other bands that were club bands haven't. They, right. They're just in the firmament for a while and then they're gone. Yeah, they were just working, but they weren't having that long-term vision, that ambition like uh, the Beatles and the Stones had. You know, someone like Mick Jagger, he was thinking years ahead, I think. Yeah, I mean, we had ambition. Don't get me wrong. We weren't just jobbing musicians, but we didn't put that into practice. John and I started to try and write a few things. And uh, when we went to Denmark, right at the very death, I think the band was probably onto a new thing, but it was too late. We ran out of money and everything went. Yeah. As we say in England, tips upwards. <laughs> right. But it, after I take what I want, it, next single was I Feel Good. And that's another really great song and a great example of taking an American soul record and doing something different with it, giving it a bit of aggression and a, and a very English feel in a way. And that that one, I believe, is a fuzz tone, right, on your, on your guitar. That is horrible as well. It makes my teeth um, go on edge when I hear it. It was... Um, <laughs> I think it was a pep box designed by a guy called Peppy Rush, who helped us out going when we broke down in Wandsworth, going west southwest London. And uh, we pulled into a side road, and this big guy got out, pulled in after us. And he said, Can I help you, lad? And chatted, and he said, Oh, I'm Peppy Rush, and uh, I design stuff. And come and look me up. So we did. And he had this. Uh, dusty old kind of uh, makeshift little office-type laboratory. And um, he said, here, try one of these out. And I did. But it was very early days. He went on to greater things. And, and it wasn't really like a like a foot pedal, right? It was a different, totally different format, right? Could you explain that? It was the size of a cigar box. It was uh, two inches by six. And it plugged straight into your amp and you plugged into that and it had a very sophisticated control system called on and off <laughs> that was it <laughs> so on was <laughs> <laughs> so i take it you didn't take that on the road and use it a lot no uh i always like the sound of overdriven guitars by the by now i've been seduced 
and joined the Marshall Revolution uh, because I was getting fed up with Selma's. Actually, I think unfairly, because when I listen to some of the sounds, you go through various stages as a guitar player, you know, you listen to this sound, you like it. You listen. I was all over Steve Cropper in the early days. and then, um, But now I listen and I hear clean sounds. I think that's a lovely sound. But at the time, all this kind of overdriven stuff was happening. Right. And, um, yeah, I, I started to overdrive the amp. I had a small 50-watt um, Marshall, and I enjoyed the sound out of that, so I didn't feel I needed a... And there is something, Richie Blackmore once said, the sound of a guitar straight into the amp without going through a lot of full pedals yeah. is, uh, is great. And later in my career, when I sort of got into session playing, I did have to get a big battery of foot pedals because that's what would be written on the part, you know, chorus or fuzz or overdrive. Yeah. If you couldn't produce it, you didn't get used the next time. You don't cry no more Well, I'm begging you You don't cry no more, girl I say I'm begging you Well, everything you share Show me that your love is true Let's talk a little bit about the album, the, the Artwood's Legendary Art Gallery album. What are your memories of uh, of making that? Again, Mike Vernon is producing, and uh, it's mostly covers of R&B and soul from America. I seem to remember a lot of that was done at Southern Music. Mike came and guested there. I know we started to merge and do stuff at Decker as well. Yeah. It was hectic because we did have a busy work session. So as I said to you earlier, we were tired getting the stuff down that narrow corridor of sheet music that tumbled down on top of you and <laughs> getting it into the back room. And and then you always were faced with a short afternoon because you had to go back and do a gig that night. I remember that. And I remember, in fact, the more I talk about it, the more I'm sure it was done at. I can picture Keith Hartley in a little booth off to the side. We did a track called Don't Cry No More. That was quite difficult to coordinate, looking through the window of the door, because we were playing live. We weren't overdubbing. So, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the whole thing about playing live is eye contact, and uh, that oh, was yeah. how it was then. There are some great tracks on that album. Maybe we could talk about a few of them. Um the version of One More Heartache is just fantastic. One more heartache I can't take it My heart is carrying such a heavy load I love that. I did like that track. I love the original, naturally. Right. Marvin Gaye, wasn't it? And we tried to always... You know, I talk about writing earlier, but we tried to exercise our creativeness through modifying songs, and that was one. I can remember rehearsing it, sticks in my mind to this day, and we rehearsed in a, um, a shed 
wooden shed in Malcolm Poole's back garden, which was quite a, wasn't a back garden, it was an estate because his dad was Mr. Poole, who ran Poole's dairies on the Uxbridge Road. And uh, it had an orchard and the chickens and... <laughs> His mum was into amateur operatics, and she had the first call on this shed, which was packed with uh, the flats from the operatic, uh, you know, the amateur jam company scenery. So we crammed in there and did most of our rehearsing there. So happened that there was a greasy spoon calf over the road, so we could go over and have our lunch there. And but yeah, we must have spent hours in that bloody place. In fact, the cover of um, the album is a photograph of us in that. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And on the back and cover, you're, you're spread out with all that pieces of scenery in the background, right? Yeah. We, we got it out for a laugh, you know, I don't know if his mum approved. And <laughs> um, I can remember us rehearsing and we had that thing where we went into that bit in the middle. Dum, 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 and we built it you know we loved dynamics that was the thing we loved building and going softer because we listened to some of the blues guys they did all that yeah i mean the 12 bar blues is a very narrow canvas but you go and listen to somebody like the blues master like what bb i mentioned earlier albert king all those guys they make a whole set out of it by using every ploy every musical ploy. And that's what I admire about musicians of that caliber. They, I went to see Bo Diddley, and I like Bo Diddley, but after one number, I thought, hold on a minute, this is nominally an hour and a half set. <laughs> and number two on the set was another exactly like the previous one. And uh, I thought, I don't know if I had. By the end, I was rocking because it was hypnotic. Yeah. You know, music doesn't have to be ever-changing. It can be lots of different things. It can be the same, but hypnotic. So there you go. That's my thoughts on music. <laughs> so one more heartache was worked up in that shed, in the in the dairy. and yeah, uh, it was. And stables where the electric milk floats charged. <laughs> oh, wow. I keep forgetting you don't love me no more. I keep forgetting you don't want me no more I keep forgetting that you told me that you didn't want me around anymore But my stupid old feet just head for your street Like they done so many times before And let's talk about um, I Keep Forgetting, the Chuck Jackson song written by Lieber and Stoller and Wow, I mean, that's quite a sophisticated arrangement, and you guys really did something special with it, I think. I remember rehearsing that at the 100 Club. It was um, it was tuned percussion from memory yep. on the original. We didn't have that. But if Keith did the best he could around his kit, I'm, I'm not trying to big myself up when I say I figured it out. The whole band figured it out. But if I played the... On guitar muted, and we mixed it in with the drums. It might simulate it, and I think it's a perfect example of what I was saying earlier. That if you're a devotee of Chuck Jackson, you probably think it's rubbish, but we thought we were doing the best we could. 
Oh, I think that one's special. I think, I, yeah, I, I think you really, yeah, you, you nailed it. It's, it's really great. So even though you weren't doing much writing, you guys were really excelling as arrangers. No, no, we didn't. We, 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 we were just having a laugh. <laughs> Let's talk about Be My Lady, Booker T and the MGs. That's one of the best uh, covers I've heard of, of Booker T material. Are you um, serious? Yeah, it's really a, a, exceptional. You know, between what you, you're doing and, and what John is doing, it, it's really great. Well, it comes as no surprise that John loved Booker T, and I loved Steve Cropper, and uh, we were in awe of them, really. I think I did this guitar break on it, didn't I? And I, what I did is I, I played it in the normal way, and then I played it again exactly the same, but I picked it between the bridge, and on the, in those days I had a tremolo arm, big speedy tremolo. Yeah. There was a quite long run between the bridge and the pass over of the tremolo arm, so it gave a very high-pitched sound, but strangely harmonically contributing to what you'd already played. So it was a weird, weird sound. So you, you doubled your regular guitar part by playing on those bridge strings? Yes, exactly. Wow, yeah, okay. It's a great effect. Um, one more I'd like to mention, because this speaks to the humor, sense of humor of the band, and that's Keep Looking. And on Solomon Burke's version, you know, he does sort of a gospel beginning you know church kind of thing so you i think maybe assume maybe so you know maybe a black gospel church wouldn't feel particularly uh, natural for you so we sort of gave it kind of a c of e kind of kind of approach can you talk about that well yes and we nominated john because john had been to the central school of drama when i met him he was uh, in the middle of his course but i think he either left or got kicked out i can't remember yeah and so he had an actorial voice and um, Mike Vernon was a very into comedy. He loved The Goon Show. We kind of latched on. We also did. It was a big thing in those days. Uh, I guess Americans don't know about The Goon Show, but Peter Sellers. And, um, Spike Milligan. Yeah, Spike Milligan. Harry Seacon. Right. It was massive in a boy's life growing up in the 50s. And um, he he suggested we rustled some paper like they were prayer books, you know. I'm so happy to be her today. If, and yeah, I heard it the other day. I haven't heard it in forty years. It cracked me up, actually, dear John. It is. It, it, yeah, it's it's really funny. And and that, and there's other ones that show your humor, like Molly Anderson's Cookery Book and things like that. Yeah, I mean. It's a stupid title with a stupid uh, a, a, a riff. Is that the one that goes doop, 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 and, uh, on bass or something? I think yeah. you stuck a piece of paper under the strings and got that sound. <laughs> yeah, 
iron edged soundproof bananas and things like that. Very goons. That was pure art. That was art doing all that. He was he had a weird mind to dark. <laughs> yeah. Surrealistic. <laughs> After Art Gallery, um, you left Decca, no, nothing else for Decca, and you went to Parlophone for a single, which was actually one of your best, I think, In the Deep End and What Shall I Do. You would, it sounded like now, I mean, In the Deep End, I think, was an original song, and you were really trying to find a sound at that point that was the Artwood's original sound. A little too late, maybe, but you got there, I think, on this one. I think you're right. Um, yeah, I enjoyed that session. I remember it. I think we did that downstairs at Decca. I think Mike produced that as well. Yeah, I think he might have, yeah. I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's almost... I mean, there's shades of deep purple there already that didn't exist yet, but the things John's doing with the organ and the way it interacts with the guitar and the drums and everything, it's a heavier sound. Yeah. It's probably one of the sing one of the tracks I wouldn't cringe at. Um, was it with passage of time and one's musical tastes altering? You've got to be honest about things. And um, some of the '60s stuff wasn't that great. I mean, my dad was a devotee of the '30s, but he said there was also awful lot of crap about as well, like make yourself a happiness pie. And, uh, but there was an awful lot of great stuff. And there was no different in the 60s. Of course, yeah. And and Keith Hartley left the group shortly after that single. And no, Colin... he didn't leave. We, we, we parted ways. We uh, wanted a different drummer. <laughs> uh, he, he's rewritten history, but uh, I'm afraid I've got to say it like it is. So, yeah, tell us exactly how it went down there. Let's put it on the record once and for all. Keith was from North up north, near Liverpool, Preston. Uh, we were Londoners. And when he joined the band, there was no beef. It, it emerged that Keith was very, um, I don't know, he seemed to carry a chip on his shoulder and felt very downtrodden. And he tended to take it out um, on us, you know. And um, we'd have rows. And then he started buggering about on stage and oh god he'd met this drummer famous drummer who told him you've got to experiment on stage it's no good keeping it all in the rehearsal room so keith bless him he was a good blues drummer but he wasn't a big technician so he'd go into these breaks and come out of them all over the place and it was it was doing our head in because we were tight we wanted to be a tight band right sounding like we were tight personalities but i assure you we weren't but we we had a vision we wanted to be really put on a show and if you've got someone experimenting on stage well anyway so we decided to get rid of keith 
and that's when we got a guy called Colin Martin in. I think the band became much more um, fluid, and uh, but it was too late. It was in the last year of the band. Right. But there you are. I'm sorry if that's put anybody's nose out of joint, but no, let's have the truth. Some, <laughs> he's written some pretty um, acrimonious things about the band since. I think in his book he put that I was only interested in dressing up. <laughs> well, we were all buying stuff from carnaby street and so i thought it was a bit rich coming from someone who made a living out of wearing a native indian headdress yeah i was gonna say (laughs) you know i i I never got a chance to tackle him on that he's um he's not around anymore so i won't be able to but uh I, i don't like it when people alter history reinvent the truth no you know, Sorry. one of my missions is to stamp out that stuff and get the real story. And so that's part of what we're doing here today. Well, Keith Hartley got lucky because um, John Mayer, who changed, changed his drummer, and he rang Art up and he said, I hear you've just got rid of your drummer. Can you give me his number? And Keith got the job. And that catapulted him into a new era. Right. Meanwhile, the artwoods with Colin Martin on drums, uh, you know, there's some evidence of where you were headed with with these live recordings that were made in Denmark that came out many years afterwards. Um, Talk a little bit about what you were doing and and the Danish tour. We were doing a mix of writing and uh, we were doing a mix of adapting songs. And um, the actual recordings were done in a... Uh, cafe. It was called the Funny Park. It was um like um what do you call them? Uh, fun fair. Um, with a big wheel, like, like an amusement park. With fairground. Yeah, it was on exactly on the edge of um, Copenhagen called Charlottenlund, and there was a big restaurant, and we were resident there for a week. It was great, you know. They fed us, and we got a chance to really play, and we were relaxed, and we had Colin in, and we were living in a house with um. Dave Swarbrick and Martin Carthy from... Dave Swarbrick that went on to Fairport Convention, yeah. Yeah, anyway, that was great. And they had the kids there. It was very hippie time. Um, Sergeant Pepper came out while we were there. It was that that era. And I felt good. I felt really relaxed. And uh, I thought we could get some good stuff down. It wasn't particularly indicative of what we were trying to do because the recording is so bad. It's um, done on a handheld, you know, somebody bootlegged it, but good luck to them. There yeah, amazing that it even exists. There's, so thank you. Whoever That's why I it. think I don't get too precious about bootlegging. I would if I was in the Stones. But, you know, when you're in a club band, um, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about it now. So back from Denmark, you made one more single, and now you, you're on Fontana Records, and you've 
got a new name. Tell us about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Well, it was another in the many mistakes made by the artists of thinking that by changing our name we could perpetuate. And John was all up for it because we were getting a lot of attention. Bonnie and Clyde had come out and uh, the gangster thing was huge. Um, we thought, we thought, oh right, we could form a band around that called uh, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And uh, Faye Dunning, is it? She came over, she was in the film. Right. She, she did a PA in London and we were allotted as escorts for her. And there's a Pathé News black and white of us walking up Denmark Street protecting her with uh, machine guns and and the launch was at the speakeasy in Margaret Street and uh, we served the press gin and teacups and yeah. uh, we had a professional film set guy come in with an authentic Tommy gun and he sat on the fire escape outside uh, we made our entrance to the sound of the Tommy gun going up which bloody deafening they are really <laughs> seriously loud those things and so we walk in and the press is, oh, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, yeah, we're onto something here. You know, you're only as good as... Actually, that song, Brother Can You Spare a Dime, was a favourite of my dad's, who was a Bing Crosby fan. Yeah. And I got I got the music and I had a look at it and I thought, maybe we could do a modern take on that. And uh, I got together with John and the rest of the guys. Again, I'm making it sound as if it's my band, it's only my perspective on it. Um, yeah. We all had an input. Um, so sorry about that. It came across egotistically. But uh, it was a song I suggested. I remember it. we were playing in Strasbourg and staying in this literally flea-bitten pension. pension. And um, there were bed bugs there. Shows what a glamorous life rock and roll is. <laughs> We were playing at this place called the Funny Farm, and it was a Western cowboy French take on a farm. So they show us our accommodation, and they take us up into this hayloft, and it's bare, no furniture, and there are straw mattresses in the corner. And we looked <laughs> and we went, no way. And Malcolm Paul, who'd blagged at some sort of, um, Maurice Chevalier cane with a silver top was banging his cane <laughs> and saying, we're not staying here. <laughs> so they take us back into Strasbourg and get us this pensione and we're all kipping there and Mark, um, poor old Art wakes up in the morning. He's a mass of bites and uh, we complain to the, the patron and he says, no, no, pas possible. So it went on a couple of nights, and poor old Art was really miserable. And um, so we thought we'd set a trap. So we'd read up a bit about it. Didn't have Google in those days, by the way, folks. So someone got on the light switch, and someone got ready with a bar of wet soap, and someone got ready to peel the bedclothes back. And we all coordinated and went, dab, 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 dab. And it looked like London Zoo on the blooming, you know, and we took it to the governor and said, that is off your mattress, mate, you know. 
So he got them fumigated. He got new mattresses in. <laughs> and and that's where you learned the song, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime, which is kind of appropriate, you know, the depression. Era. Well, yeah. I, I, I sat on the very bed I'm talking about. I said, well, why don't we um, have a go at this? And I sort of propositioned it to the guys. And, yeah, I mean, it had fabulous lyrics. It was all about the depression in America and returning GIs, you know, yeah. being ignored it's very relevant today to america yeah. unfortunately we were british boys singing it we had our own depression in the 1930s so um it had a certain amount of relevance john went back to um denmark where we played a lot and he went back with the, uh it was prior to deep purple it was going to be called circus i think it was going to be called round, roundabout oh maybe it was roundabout it was Chris Curtis, the drummer, wasn't it? Yeah, from the from the searchers, yeah. That's it. Oh, you got it. Roundabout. And it was going to involve circus acts and stuff like that, <laughs> as John put it to me. And uh, thank you for correcting me on that. A bit of the jigsaw puzzle fell out. <laughs> yeah. And you, you're a very knowledgeable man, I have <laughs> to say. Your research is impeccable. Anyway, uh, yeah, they, they interviewed John, and all they wanted to talk about was uh, the artwoods. They'd, and we'd been there as um, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Didn't want to know. Didn't want to know about Roundabout. Just wanted to talk about um, the artwoods. I take comfort from that. <laughs> After the artwoods, John Lord, of course, went on to Deep Purple. Derek went on to play with Lucas and the Mike Cotton Sound, Colin Bluntstone, Dog Soldier, Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, and in the pit orchestra of the original Rocky Horror Picture Show. He also did a lot of session work, including studio sessions produced by Paul McCartney in 1969 for Mary Hopkins' first album. If you're a Patreon supporter, you can get access to that section of the interview and other exclusive content. And today, you and Malcolm are the only remaining artwoods. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that is so, yeah. Malcolm lives in Scotland now, so I never see him. He's not in the best of health either. And we were a younger band than the Mike Cotton Sound, and most of them are alive. I meet up with them regularly in Soho, long, uh, beery afternoons, uh, talking about old stories for the probably the 50th time, but still laughing as much. <laughs> <laughs> and what what are you doing musically these days? Not a lot. I was involved with uh, the um, Bill Pie Club. Um, Ali, Ali McKenzie was the singer with the birds. And I, yeah. we got a little band together. We called it for a laugh, Bird Wood. Don't need to go into details there. Um, two years ago, Ali sadly got very ill very quickly and died. So don't feel the same anymore, you know. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the gigging scenes shot in london well i say shot no it's not but the trouble with us guys not you you're a different generation but my generation of musicians we expected to carry on as normal we're going well there's no gigs around anymore well yes there are but for 20 and 30 year olds mate you know <laughs> yeah. not pieces of our age get real so you're sort of retired, forced into retirement, as it were. Yes, discarded. Um, so many of us are. I mean, 
my mate's Clem Catini, who has been on 45 number one singles um, drummer. Yeah. And uh, Clem's a bit of a legend, but he never gets off of work anymore. Well, actually, he's hung up his sticks. I mean, it's physically difficult for an 85-year-old drummer these days. Oh, yeah. Well, Just... not any days. <laughs> yeah. I miss it, but at the same time, I treasure the fact I had a career that lasted end of the 50s through to about 2001, till recently. Yeah. So, yeah, that's pretty impressive. Six, 60 years, basically. Well, so the thing about hit records is they do give you that celebrity thing where um, people want to keep you coming, like Clem had it. He does lots of after-dinner speaking at golf clubs. And um, I've done a lot with my re relationship to the um, to the Eel Pie Club. You know, there's a big fascination about Eel Pie Island. For us, it was a gig. But for everybody else, it was a place to... Um, I found out that I cracked the code that a lot of young people in the area, they love to talk about Ilpai because it represented a step towards freedom. Their mums and dads didn't approve. It was reb rebellion. Yeah. So. Yeah, I've talked to quite a few that. musicians that reference that. You know, that um, I talked to um, Elmer Gantry, if you remember him. But yeah, he yeah. said he used to go fishing as a kid and, you know, have a tent with a couple of his friends and he'll across the way was eel pie with trad jazz floating across the river and he thought yeah someday i want to be there you know things like that you know it's it was i guess it's some it. kind of yeah it represented something exotic and uh yeah bohemian you know exactly you hit the nail on the head bohemian is a word that people have forgotten existed but um in uh britain it was certainly uh prevalent and uh as I said, when I rocked up to Ilpa, I couldn't believe all these people with long hair. But they were, they were young art students, you know, and living the life, the bohemian life. Right. Yeah. That was something that, I guess, in post-war Britain, that's very appealing when everything else is very grey and conventional and conformist. To see something like that, people playing blues and jazz and growing their hair long or painting and writing poetry or whatever it was, you know, that's really yeah, yeah. exciting. Indeed. Of course, early days at Ilpai, it was a chain ferry. There was no bridge. So they used to wind them across on a, on a rowing boat in, wow. you know, backwards and forwards. And uh, they had its own mystique on the bridge, the island side, they had a little pillbox and a woman used to be in there collect a small toll for using the bridge and uh they had the bright idea of printing eel pie island passports so <laughs> when you went over to eel pie island you got eel pie island passport wow. it's only so about you were entering a different yards. land like a sovereign yeah. nation <laughs> i guess it's no more than 400 meters by 200 meters it's something it's ever so small you can pass it on both sides in the Thames. And yeah. they've got a big boat building facility there. I think they built some of the boats that went over on D-Day 
Oh, really? And the hotel long since burnt to the ground. Went up one night under mysterious circumstances. There's a girl I know called Michelle Whitby. Uh, she had a business on the island, and Michelle has written droves about it. And she runs, curates the Eel Pie Museum, which operates in Twickenham High Street. And uh, it was very murky what happened. Property developers strongly suspected. But yeah. what had happened is it had lost its and Back in the day, my grandfather at the end of his life had a mistress called Lil. And Lil can remember um, rowing up the Thames to tea dances at the Eel Pie Hotel. And it, I believe it was a hotel. It had a certain um, charm back in Edwardian days and mystique. And then in the 50s, became a jazz venue, 60s, etc. And then they were given kind of notice to get out. And um, it became a, a sort of hippie crash pad. It, I think they tried to keep it going with heavy metal bands. And I think Deep Purple played there. And then, um, then it became a kind of squat. And they were ripping up the floors and burning them and and then eventually the whole bloody place burnt down. Yeah. It was replaced by a housing estate. So the romance is gone. That's why we're all still talking about it, but because it's not there anymore. It represents something it's that we It's very lost. residential now, very residential, but in an alternative way. I've um, been over there to do interviews since. In fact, I've been in the, that estate, and it's like quite suburban, and it's very small. But, um, but on the way over, as you come over island side, it's surrounded by little beach house type dwellings. Uh, anyway, so uh, if ever you get a chance, you know, when you come, you can walk over there. There's these lovely little places you think, oh, it's like the Hobbit, you know. And then you've got the boatyard and then you've got this modern housing estate. But uh, yeah, it ain't what it was. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and hosted by Mike Stacks. That's me. You can read more about the artworks in issue number 64 of Ugly Things Magazine, published at the end of November 2023. Ugly Things Magazine is available at the very coolest record and bookstores and at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, books and CDs and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review and spread the word to all of your friends. We would also really appreciate it if you'd consider becoming a Patreon supporter. For just a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, psychedelic music, and more. And I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters. Sophia Swartz, Keith Patterson, Dean Curtis, David Biasotti, David Jones, Michael Barbara, Rob Brannigan, Chip Lyon, Stephen Schmidt, J. Paul Riger, and Derek Davidson. Thank you, all of you, for your support. Thank you 
for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.